Um, Adam Hopewell at uh, BehaveOps. Uh, how are you, Adam? Good to see you. Hey, it's good to be seen, Lawrence. Good to be seen. You know, I'm looking forward to this. I can feel a lot of like high energy, positivity. Um, so, yeah, H how's everything going at BehaveOps? At BehaveOps, things are rocking and rolling, man. Uh, yeah, it's been interesting times from a number of uh, meta perspectives. Uh, economy has been interesting, and there's still a lot of question marks lurking around us, aren't there? But uh, we, we try to be systematic about approaching them and uh, handle the, with the knowledge that you have what you can uh, and the knowledge that you don't have, try and gain it. Uh, so, uh, so far, like uh, sales have been looking good so far this year, like uh, targets have been met and exceeded. Product development's looking strong. Uh, well, teams are uh, very right vibrant. You're, no, you're, 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 you're definitely in the right space. In fact, what, why don't we? Why don't we just give... Um, give our viewers just a bit of insight into uh, BehaveOx, what it is you guys do, and uh, yeah, really what it is you're looking to achieve. All right, well, um, BehaveOx uh, essentially at this point is, what, she's eight, just over eight years old, so it's a, a youngish organization. Um, it's a very concentrated uh, talent community, so it's not a large organization by headcount. Uh, there's one over about 250 peeps in the entire collection, uh, but each of those carefully selected, hopefully carefully groomed, uh, and uh, highly contributing towards the uh, mission of the organization. And what's that mission, really? It's to be able to provide um, majorly banks, uh, financial institutions with a compliance solution that uses a artificial intelligence, uh, essentially to be able to uh, analyze communication data and identify uh, malicious uh, behavior uh, within the population of the organization which we serve. Uh, so we work with some of the biggest banks in the world, some of the biggest financial houses. Uh, essentially, all the communication data is analyzed by our systems and it identifies those people who might be being naughty uh, and those people who might be being nice. Uh, so it's like Santa, I guess, <laughs> for the compliance space. Yeah. Well, do, do you know what? There's actually, um, I've got to say, that the, the, the banks actually really seem to have like a huge drive towards this space right now. Um, and they're throwing money at it. Um, mm -hmm. the tier two banks, the hedge funds, you know, and again, I think in terms of cybersecurity, um, it's growth will correlate directly with the growth in the application of AI. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, I think I think that as AI improves, uh, you know, these banks and hedge funds specifically, they're going to want to make sure that they do have the best security for. Um, for, for for managing the assets that they are managing, so yeah, so I mean, it, it's obviously an exciting time for you guys. Um, and what, what, what's what's your background? Well, okay, there's a tale or two to be told about that. Um, but essentially, uh, I've worked all over the world over the last twenty plus years. Um, I've been fortunate enough to to live on the ground and work. What, four years in China, four years in India, like seven years in the Middle East, uh, years in Europe, uh, and the last seven years here in the US. So uh, I've, I'm based in Washington, D.C., just outside. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, always working uh, in the talent and HR space, uh, really trying to bring, I suppose, talent strategy, talent science, and talent systems into play based on a business's needs, uh, at the time. So I've been headhunted and called in to go off on assignments, uh, working for some multi-billion dollar FMCGs in the Middle East or giant education organizations out of China or uh, uh, 
Where did you live? So, so let, let, let's. Sorry, we can't skip over this. Where did you live in the yeah. middle of Castle? All right. So uh, primarily, I lived. I lived for two years in Qatar, um, working for Qatar Petroleum. Uh, so one of the companies that is Qatar, like uh, amazing uh, institution, uh, and uh, really helped with them. Uh, defining all of the roles uh, by competency basis across the entire organization to help with some of their nationalization programs uh, so that we could build up the skill sets necessary for uh, bringing more Qataris into the workforce. Uh, spent what, two Qatar. years... Second? Oh, sorry, before before you, uh, before you skip on from Qatar, can you just help me with something? Yeah, yeah. So we're starting to do more and more work in the Middle East. Um, we have been very fortunate to get through to people in the same position as you, we demo round to them and we ask them what they want in terms of the enterprise solution. And they always say to us, uh, when, when it gets to money and we start to discuss money, we're hearing this more and more. We don't have a budget. We just want to make sure that you're, you're fair with your pricing. Don't take it wrong. I mean, what does that even mean? Like, where should companies even start with that? And I've got to say, specifically companies uh, in that part of the world. We don't have a budget. We just want you to be fair. Well, I think this is part of the uh, training script for uh, enterprise solution software purchases, uh, uh, enterprise solution services full stop. The CIOs probably train their people. The, okay, so first line is, uh, how's it going to drive our business? Second line is, oh, but we don't have a budget, so how are you going to help us with that? Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a bit of a negotiation strategy, but in all fairness, uh, uh, there has been a kind of mental model to, amongst a lot of people that said the Middle East hemorrhages cash. There are some very cash-rich organizations, some very profitable organizations, as there are all over the world. Uh, I think it doesn't behove us to, to go in with the assumption that every organization we speak to is necessarily cash-rich. A lot of them need to be uh, conservative and efficient. And even a cash-rich company should be uh, efficient yeah. about the well, way it deploys its capital. I'd rather they just turn around to me and said, this is our budget. This is what we think we would, this this is how we would determine the return on investment. And this is how we think you should price it, right? Oh. I'd rather than have that than to say, just, you know what? We can see the value in this. Um, we'll try it for a year. If it works out, we'll renew it. If it doesn't work out, then we'll never work with you again. Like, <laughs> uh, you, you want them to, to, to taste the taste the, the joy of the cake uh, yes well <laughs> to get to that is uh, often uh, a fairly torturous process uh, because uh, they're very diligent about how money's been spent there's, remember there's a lot of folks that went in there with uh, let's say casual solutions uh, and uh, tried to sell into the Middle East and they've got a bit more wary about it and that behoves their intelligence and the fact that they've responded to actually being more cautious about what's being brought on board, uh, especially when it's a systems integration, which is uh, not easy to extract yourself from. Uh, and uh, yeah, like like any professional, they just want to see good ROI, um, but they're going to lead with a little bit of uh, um, regional negotiation. Don't give up, Lawrence. Like yeah, just because they're asking you how much uh, budget, uh, or they don't have budget for it, that doesn't mean necessarily they don't. Uh, it means they need you to sell them a little bit more on the value you're going to bring. Adam, I've, I've got this. No, I haven't explained this clearly enough. Like they're buying from us. Okay. No, the issue isn't uh, they're buying from us. It's am I, I'm thinking, am I going in too low? So, you know, <laughs> like, like, like there's, this isn't an altruistic problem here. This is. Oh, they're selling. They're saying fast. They're, sorry, they're saying yes, very fast. Um, uh -huh. Should I be going in higher? That that's more. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. Well, it depends somewhat on your competitive landscape, Monsieur. Like, no. uh, are there other people who are offering services similar to your own? Well, some would say not. So, uh, I, I do feel we've got a unique proposition, genuinely. But I will say this, and you've got something very interesting. The procurement process in the Middle East, right? When you were out there, was it uh, normal for a procurement process to take like six to 12 months in order to bring on a supplier? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of authorizations necessary. It tends to like uh, Middle Eastern organizations tend, and it's only a trend, of course, but they tend to historically to be quite hierarchical and need multiple levels of uh, approvals in order for anything to uh, meaningfully occur. Um, for those organizations where you're working more with potentially American or UK, where there can be less levels of hierarchy, it can mean you're, you're directly communicating with your decision maker straight away. Usually there's a committee, it's a very collective society and therefore has tendency to be, and therefore the committees need to be brought together and get multiple sign-offs at different levels, which means the person you're pitching to is probably pitching above, is pitching above uh, in order to get the solution to occur. Not, not untypically any organization, but more pronounced, I would say, potentially in the Middle East. And your message is being diluted. What's interesting, I think, working with US companies, um, and I kind of feel like this is like the Steve Jobs effect, right, with Apple, um, even as the companies grow, they're still trying to manage them in the way that they did when it was a startup, right? They're not trying to have, like, loads of committees, um, the boast rants um, that lead them to, like, numerous uh, meetings. It's very much, this is your responsibility execute or get fired you know which is actually a far more well it's a far more efficient way in in many aspects right um just move quickly and i think one thing american companies are just the best in the world at well besides producing the best software in the world is actually just like um proving very resilient adapting very quickly um and actually just gauging like you know the trajectory of the market right and they Everything in the US feels much faster than it does in, say, the UK and Europe. <laughs> yeah, we, we we certainly like speed over here. You can tell from my accent. I'm originally from the UK, and as I say, I worked all over the world. The last seven years here in the US, uh, the pace has been uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it moves, it shifts. Uh, that, that's that's engaging. That's uh, if you're someone who enjoys that uh, that kind of rapidity then uh, it's something to embrace. Um, but I also think that uh, there's a number of American organizations uh, that do try and maybe hold on to that uh, younger stage of evolution. If you look at something like an Adizis model of growth of plateauing of different organizational development stages, uh, then some try and cling on to some of the, I, I call it the, uh, well, what's the way I described it most effectively? I think it's the, the sales of today can become the anchors of tomorrow. So sometimes that's, uh, very thin organizational structure or like, um, can be very helpful at a younger stage of an organization, but you need more processes, you need more systems as you get more mature as an organization, as you take size up, uh, you basically need to, to develop. It's like, a, a, I see it almost like in a human stage, like you've got toddlers, stage you've got uh, an infant stage i've got my own little baby girl i see her going through developmental stages uh, and uh, organizations go through these same developmental stages they have maturities and they have different needs at different times uh, i think if you're still trying to hold on to your your toddler needs when you're a teenager there's something a little dysfunctional or unoptimized about that as a scenario um so anyway, like, uh, yeah, American organizations are uh, delightful to work with uh, the majority of the time, uh, but sometimes uh, they, they hold some things which they saw bring them success in the past, which is what I call the sales of, to, uh, of the 
past, basically, but they become the anchors of tomorrow. They're things that hold them back going forward. So it's always good to reevaluate your organization based on where it is, uh, how it's developed, how mature it is, and really look at some of those practices that were embedded. And are they the right ones for today? They were the right ones for yesterday. They were helping your business. But are they still the right ones today? And that's quite a bit of what I do in more strategic work with organizations. So, I actually think that's quite interesting. So in, in terms of the fact that sometimes when you're creating something for a company, you fall in love with it. And whatever it is you're creating, the feeling you have towards it is disproportionate. Um to the productivity is actually going to be able to offer, right? So mm-hmm. a website's probably the best idea or an, or an app. You could love a feature that you've developed on it, but actually it detracts away from the core focus. And you have to be able to say, right, guys, we're cutting our, cutting our losses and we're getting rid of this feature. We might come back to it in the future, but right now um, it doesn't work. So, I mean, in terms of that, I mean, so you mentioned India, China, Qatar. Where else did you say you worked in the Middle East? I lived in Dubai. I was vice president of Abu Dhabi University for a couple of years. Uh, I was uh, living in Dubai and commuting up Sheikh Zayed uh, each day uh, from Dubai Marina all the way down to Abu Dhabi University. So how long did you say you lived there for? Uh, In Dubai in total, three years. Uh, I see. And then I, for what the best part of two years, I had a residence across in Tehran as well, which is a is an unusual wow. scenario. Okay. Uh, which is where where in fact I met my wife uh, over in Tehran, uh, and uh, was working for the Loop Savola, which is a seven billion dollar FMCG group. Uh, they were Tehran. Fascinating city, like uh, historical, like beautiful. The mountains ranging in the background behind the city are glorious. Uh, really warm, hospitable people, very smart, well-educated as a, as I was as about a whole. To say they're, they're, they're disproportionately intelligent, right, and academic. Like, uh, it's a really... Yeah, absolutely. We had a big PhD department of food scientists uh, and uh, technologists as well there. And, uh, yeah, there's some very, very smart cookies there. It, because, it, you know, it's so... It's in such stark contrast to the way in which the country's run. And, in fact, actually... Uh, Without getting without getting political, I mean, I think we've seen like the last you know year or two um, the uh, in fact let's not even touch this subject. But yeah, it's uh you know it's it, I, I don't I don't think it's uh, the right avenue to go down. But it's just yeah, it's a very very well educated society, and it's just uh, in contrast to the way in which the country's run. Let's leave it at that. Yeah, well, as I say, you look at me just then like Lawrence, stop! Don't go down this. No, man, like how we should be able to deal with thorny topics. Like, uh, oh, why am I, why am I spending this time talking to you if we can't deal with a thorny topic? Let's go for it then. Is your wife wife from Tehran? Yes, yes. So, uh, yeah, she was the uh, head of marketing for uh, HTC and then LG over there. Um, and, uh, yeah, we met uh, at a dinner party, as one might in any country in the world. Uh, eyes met across the table and uh, uh, Amor sprang into action. So, yeah, like, uh, uh, that was beautiful. I even, I've even got a property uh, in an area called Karaj. 
uh, over just outside of Tehran because it's near to Dizin, which is the ski slopes. People don't know there's some great skiing and uh, snowboarding available there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, plot's interest. I, I, I've always I've always said that if you know the Middle East gets their act together, and it looks like they really are pushing towards doing so, touchwood. Um, you know, if they get their act together, they're just going to own the whole tourist industry. Right, they've got you know they've got everything you need all year round. Uh, it's it's amazing, like because you can be in the deserts of Qatar uh, and uh, like dune bashing one morning or doing some nice diving uh, off the coast there, and then you can be pottering up to uh, Tehran and uh, be in the mountains of skiing. Like they say that California has that, but the Middle East also has that. Okay, so you've got to take a little flight hop. But uh, it's, as you say, it could well be a, a booming place. And they're very hospitable. The food's great and uh, the culture's nice. And, oh, if you speak a bit of Arabic and a little bit of Farsi, that helps just smooth things through. They take that. I've always believed in that. Every country I've ever lived in, getting at least the basics of the language to, to be able to hold small talk at least, uh, just seemed considerate. It seemed respectful in order to be someone who was living and working on the ground in that territory. Well, and, and to be fair, I mean, that, that comparison with California, I mean, uh, you know, Tehran's much safer than California. <laughs> well, OK, now that's where we get on a really hot potato, like especially with last weekend's news. And uh, oh, anyway, yes, um, yeah, well, there I are don't, some, uh, I've got to be honest, I don't know what last weekend's news was, but I'm not going to push on that. But uh, yeah, I can um, there's there's something strange going on in there from especially from a British perspective on the gun culture here in the US. Uh, fortunately, I've, it's never impacted my life seven years here, never in the slightest uh, on a actual personal level. But uh, yeah, like uh, I get I do get my old dad phoning up. He's 85 and he's like he's from the island. He's on the island of Old He's like son, son. I just heard there was there was some kind of shooting accident uh, incident over in the US. Are you okay? I'm like. Yes, sir. Like the, that's actually the far other side yeah, of the country, yeah. or like oh, very, very yeah. far away. Uh, but yeah, but it's listen. It, it's not so. We we do something called Rayon Founder Stories, mm-hmm. and um, as part of what we do, we get super smart young founders who are building like really amazing technologies, and we film like webinars, kind of like this, but in terms of uh, eight to ten people on the pod on the show, and. If big tech companies talk about what it is they're offering and everyone gets their chance to talk. And, and I came across this founder the other day. I'm not going to name drop, but he's building and he's or it's rather he's using AI. I don't like saying people are building AI because most of them aren't, but he's using AI as a tool to predict like school shootings in the US. And he's mm-hmm. using the same technology um, to locate survivors during um or sorry after natural disasters and he actually showed me where he had um i guess taken the data from and taken images from the earthquake which happened sadly earlier this year in turkey and how he would use drone technology uh, along with his along with his ai um as a as a tool to actually find survivors in the rubble it was you gotta love what you can do with the data isn't it amazing, Lawrence? Like basically these days, like uh, if you can get access to quality data, the, the applications for that with an AI system behind it are. Uh, I, in fact, I didn't know whether we were going to go here on the future of work discussions, but uh, there are some really interesting matters going on in the entire future of work on the basis of yes, the great predictive capabilities that can be brought to play in instances like that, but also what we're seeing is potentially a massive decrease in the cost of intelligence and uh, 
as more is occurring around robotics as well, the, the, the cost of actual execution of activity as well. Um, I was just watching, uh, I think, with uh, David Shapiro, not the, uh, there's a David Shapiro who focuses on AI. Anyway, he's done some really interesting um, podcasts uh, and video logs. And he was doing a prediction just last night I was watching on a, uh, he would say 80% unemployment rate in the US impending. Uh, now, he's actually built a really nice model uh, to generate, uh, to justify why he's got to that data point. Uh, but uh, AI is, we are, are a tsunami of changes potentially upon us. Now, these things never crash quite the way we expect. And I think anybody who says with certainty that, yes, this is going to happen, or yes, this is going to happen, is basically fooling themselves as well as the people they're speaking to. But uh, we are on the cusp of a tsunami of change. I believe that. Uh, and I think that there's a lot that society needs to adapt to, as, and businesses in particular as well. And I think your example of the drone scanning and the ability to identify where survivors, who would imagine you could use a computer-based system to say, Okay, there's a the proportional likelihood of uh, a survivor being under that piece of rubble is 34%. Under that piece of rubble is 74% to actually help guide uh, in life-saving activities like that. Well, I think it's are, amazing what the people Creating mass school shootings. And do you know what? It was so clever. Like, like it was because obviously, like the Second Amendment is such a hot topic, mate. Right? I, I and as Brits, I kind of feel that I appreciate you live there, but I feel we don't quite get it. Um, I had, you know, I had a uh, an ex-girlfriend from the Midwest, right? And at the time, like super pro pro guns. Um, you know, it's this their right, the Second Amendment. And at the time, I just didn't get it. But now that I see the trajectory, the way the world's going, I'm kind of like, I'm going to sit this one out because I'm just, I'm really not sure. But what's interesting <laughs> is this, this kid, this 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 guy has just said, well, actually, we can you can let people have the guns. But we're going to be able to actually like monitor where the guns are if they move within a certain parameter of the school. And having tracking devices, Internet of Things coming up, like having guns embedded with tracking systems that allow that to occur. Man, like it does the, that doesn't restrict the Second Amendment essentially because you're still allowing people to have the guns, but it does it does stop them going into areas where you know, potentially they could cause vast damage potentially, yeah. or at least send alerts at that point. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I think that's fascinating technology. I, I hadn't heard of that. But yeah, I can, the Internet of Things merging with uh, AI capabilities, merging with quantum computing capabilities, and technology. Woo it's a fascinating space. More, more than just technology, America produces brilliant people. And I've got to say, I, I do feel this. So, one of the best decisions we made with Rayon. So, so when I pitched Rayon, right, when I first launched Rayon, right, it was like, the jobs market is under threat. We've got to use AI to create hundreds of millions of new jobs. And when you're talking to like Brits, like British investors, they're like, whatever, right? We'll invest with you. We'll put money into your business once you've proven you're successful. That's the only time they're interested. But the US culturally, they're like, we get it. We want to support what you're doing. You know, they ask like really inquisitive, uh, really inquisitive questions, and and that culture seeps down into just the sheer brilliance in in the in the entrepreneurs. I hate using that word, but they are in America, right? Real entrepreneurs, people that go out there and create real solutions that create real value. And I've really, I think that actually, as much as there's a threat to the jobs market, there's also an amazing opportunity sitting in front of us.
I do. I do think that. Oh, I do. Think I'm that, feeling uh, a bit of American love coming in here, Lawrence. Oh, like, there's, uh, no, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's no. Um, there's, listen, even on our pitch deck, when people like people like, can you simplify what you're building? And I was like, we're building the people's palantir, right? Oh, the people's palantir. Yeah, yes, yes, people's yes, yes. Palantir. Because you know, I, I, I think it's. Um, I think it's uh, unfair to say that pretty much anyone in the, in the world hasn't benefited um, from the innovation that's come out of the US. And I think, sadly, uh, the West as a whole is going through a very rough time. But, you know, we're idiots if we think that we're better off without without the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Like, it's uh, Russia. And it's... Yeah, it's an interesting. I was fortunate thing. enough to have a choice, really, where to live in the world, and that's not many people get the, that choice. And uh, the choice was consciously made to come here to the US. Oh. Like uh, I was fortunate enough as well to they they have a specialized program. No one's ever heard of this thing, but it's called the EB1A, which is the Alien of Extraordinary Ability. It makes you feel like ET with a glowing figure and stuff, doesn't it? Uh, but they only take like two thousand odd people who are the uh, the cutting edge of their field, and they they actually have a program just to bring those people in and make them citizens and uh, when i came across here you've got to meet a load of criteria or you've got to get some Nobel prize or blah 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 but if you meet the criteria and they're not all as stringent as a Nobel prize uh but if you meet that criteria then basically they, they will offer you citizenship for uh, almost immediately or like a green card immediately and then citizenship shortly after because they want to bring in the, the brightest and the smartest now hell man that that to me is uh, i was just fortunate i i fluked my way through it but like uh, they were i i think that kind of program is really helpful for any country yeah. you've got to look at where the brain drains are occurring from a society and where how to how to take advantage of that uh, now the, god <laughs> you're gonna tease I'm me now aren't you gonna burst your bubble but, you know, <laughs> this week it doesn't look that hard to get into the u.s let's be honest you know um it, it, seems, it seems like anyone in anyone in the world can just come to the u.s and uh claim citizenship now right <laughs> Well, we're allowed to make jokes about the Biden administration, or you know, actually, uh, post for you, isn't it? You're in Washington. Yeah, it's just like the White House, just over there, mate. No, it's a 15 minute drive, so I can't see it from a window, but uh, yeah, it is just over there. (laughs) What time? What time is it there? It's uh, Uh, we just hit 1028. Okay, fine. Look, Biden will be going for his morning nap soon, then, so uh, yeah. No, we don't make any the, the, the sleepiness of the Joe uh, is only, uh, yeah, it isn't a definite fact. It is a supposition. <laughs> I've yet to see him fall totally asleep in any scenario. Uh, to be honest, a stabilizing force. Um, I'm not going to mention the previous presidents in uh, any detail, uh, although we are seeming to not be averse to controversial topics. Uh, but I think after the rambunctiousness of the previous president having something a little sleepier and calmer is potentially a good thing for the uh, society you know what he just, uh, I, again with everything i've got to say that like one thing i feel that we have actually lost which is interesting right because you know you're, you're working as global head of talent for a company that's growing fast um we've lost the ability to evaluate and and i think that with you know whether whether it's trump or biden i think one thing i'd love for round to help with is just encourage leaders of tomorrow to get back to a point where they say actually do you know what? trump did this well and he did this badly biden biden did this well and he did this badly and and i really i really do want to try and encourage critical thinking you know 
Yeah, that's one of the things actually as a, as a Brit, as a global citizen, I find very curious here is, and I suppose in England we have it to a certain degree as well, but the partisanship, basically, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican, it doesn't matter what they want to do or whether that's feeding into your value set, it's who you are as part of your makeup. Uh, and I think that, that to me, I find very strange because it, okay. it, it eliminates, as you're saying, the critical thinking element here yeah. and just says, okay, no matter what these guys do, I'm blue, I'm red, like, yeah. okay, I, I that that I just find baffling. Like uh, I understand having an allegiance, like a, a football team, we could have an allegiance to, uh, and, and that's a different matter, I guess, because they, they can yeah, the your support them. But what do you, do you know? What I find interesting. So I, I didn't vote in Brexit. Uh -huh. The reason I didn't vote is because neither side had any argument. Like you know, the, the people that were saying we're going to remain, they were like, we're going to remain, but here's how we're going to improve it. We understand the frustration. Here's how we're going to improve it. And the people who were planning on leaving were like, let's just leave. We'll see what happens. We'll work it out. <laughs> Come on, let's wing it. We can wing it. Yeah, Come on. But, but they did. They were completely uh -huh. it. And now they're just kind of like, oh yeah, we probably shouldn't have done this. Uh, well, yeah. Or, or given the British public. Let let the British public make the decision on 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 a on on actually whether or not we stay in Europe. Well, much as you'd like to believe in democratic systems, and I'm sure that we all do, uh, it is, as famously quoted, one of the most inefficient systems in some ways, but also probably the best thing that we have. Uh, but it's about the public, as in, it, I see parallels between like governmental level and society and organizations. It's about the information that people have access to. Uh, and there's only so much information that people can soak up. Like uh, ancient Athenian democracy, everyone was well informed on the the matters of the day and therefore they were able to make uh, intelligent and contributing and dro society driving decisions and inputs uh, but in a society with as many complexities going on as we do have in modern times like uh, average joe in the street may really just be uninformed in a host of situational uh, situations and uh, matters and getting their opinion on something it's valuable because it's their opinion and you're never going to discredit someone's opinion but is it is it something that should be used to shape the direction of a nation like it's like going to the developer community uh, your company and saying okay developers like uh, let's have we're going to vote on our strategy here uh, you might not be aware of the commercial nature of the organization to a certain extent you might not be aware of other parts of the decision making necessary but we're going to ask you for your opinion taking that as an opinion is one thing making action on that eh, i'm not so sure oh, i've got i go one step further and maybe maybe i'm doing it wrong but at rayon some people, or sorry, most people, their opinion is not valid on certain matters. So I'll give you an example, right? Sit, I sit down with the developers, sit down with like the CTOs and Yarn, and Yarn is essentially my translator. So whenever we're having a, whenever we're sitting with like a, a team of like machine learning engineers, Yarn's just like, man, just wait, let them finish, and I'll explain it to you after, right? <laughs> I'm like, guys, we should use this technology, and he's like, no, 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 just, just, yeah, yeah, Laura, I'll explain it to you after. Right. My opinion when it comes to what technologies we should specifically be using is very limited in the same way we have like, when we have meetings now. I've pretty much just said to the team, guys, honestly, if it goes on to anything like marketing, creative or like, anything design focused and you don't think you can add any value, just leave and go back to work because mm -hmm. your opinion doesn't matter. 
the only caveat I'd have on that is that there's a certain educational value, uh, learning value in people being exposed to various parts of the business, which they're not experts in, uh, but uh, to get a more holistic understanding of the organization, there is a certain value in that. Uh, but essentially, yeah, like I think we work in very similar organizations. There's only a few of us. It's like, uh, it's it's very much like role specialization time. It's everyone, right. do your job, do it well. Uh, still, yeah. well, we've got a data science function of over 50 people. Uh, we've got a technology function like uh, 100, uh, like eight, up to about 100 people as well. So like um, we, have, we have a, a larger uh, community and we're very big on trying to keep people as educated around everything as possible. For example, like a couple of the initiatives we run inside our organization to try and help with that community, especially in remote work scenario, run two demo days a year. So demo days basically is the technology and the data science function presenting the cutting edge of their work. Now for the sales teams to a certain extent, to the marketing teams, to the finance teams, a lot of what they're talking about really poof, is going over their head, the Docker versus Kubernetes, like, or we've been doing this with our vector databases, uh, like it goes soaring over them. But I like the fact that they get exposure to it. I like the fact that they get an understanding of what the the, the, bolt, the nuts and bolts of the, of the company's product really is and how that works. So doing those like presentations and having people being in interactive forums to discuss those afterwards, I think is really helpful. We do two hackathons a year as well. And like hackathons, we basically will focus around some of our big thorny uh, business challenges and what uh, solutions could possibly be dreamt up and prototyped within 24 hours for those. Uh, but we'll also allow like one of the hackathon projects was uh, the fact that the, the office didn't have enough character. And so someone ended up painting, uh, one team ended up painting up a massive mural of the world and then putting where, because we've got in a company of 250 people, we've got like 40 odd nationalities. So where the people in the world came from, just to know that there was a visual representation. And that was a hackathon project. Like, uh, well, there's a lots of different ways people can express themselves in that scenario without necessarily being technological about it. And I think, but having those, so they all have to come to the watch party to watch each of the five minute videos from the hackathon as to what was they'd worked on and what's the results of what they worked on. And I think that's a really good way of bonding and raising the entire tide of, of awareness around the organization's capabilities and uh, um, where it's really innovating. We want people to get excited. Like uh, when someone says, well, we've worked on the new database, the vector databases. Like we want even our salespeople, our marketing people, our finance, HR folk to get excited about, hey, they've managed to solve that. Like, and I think like having them come along on that journey is really valuable. Well, and in terms of like culture, so it, it sounds like there's a very like, um, that's what I'm looking for not inclusive there's just a lot of like freedom in terms of like the culture right so again behavox itself is as you're growing you're still running in that startup mentality it's like guys if you see a problem in the business and you can fix it fix it and then present it right and is, is that the right culture am i am i along the right lines I think that um, the first company I encountered, which this was a very prominent point, was uh, EF Education when I was the country manager for corporate training in uh, China. And uh, I remember there was uh, one of the owners of the organization uh, said to me at one point, um, in this organization, we are asked for forgiveness rather than permission. If you find a problem, you go solve it. And then basically, if that solution doesn't uh, serve the business need, hey, then we'll rethink it. But we want everybody to be thinking about solving the challenges which we're facing. Uh, and I, that's something I've treasured ever since. I think EF's culture is, is a fabulous one of, uh, of empowerment mm -hmm. and trying to empower people. 
difficulty with empowering people is if you empower everybody, they'll all run off in 30 different directions and you're herding cats all day. Yeah, so yeah. you've got to have some kind of guiding framework about like where are the areas that are, are really hurting us, where where if you're going to spend time and discretionary effort, where where is it most going to benefit the organization? So having some guidance around that. And we've worked a lot of really putting in what we call a cascade of strategic goals. So you can tell, like, is, is this serving one of the strategic goals? If it is, hey, doesn't matter if it's been asked for or not, it's going to create results. If it's not serving one of the strategic goals, it might be a great thing to do, but we've got to have enough focus in order to, to really push forward rather than dispersing. When you've got a community of very smart people, and as I say, Behavox, we hire a very high percentile on the Radford scale for, for, for compensation. We really do a lot of uh, uh, talent analytics in order to be able to assess the capabilities they bring to the table and their fit for the organization. We've got some wonderful science. Ooh, I love, the, I love our solving for uh, interviewing and uh, evaluation process beautiful philosophy tied into really scientific correlation coefficients gathered around technical capabilities behavioral capabilities uh, cognitive abilities uh, and it really is fed into us being able to have some very high correlation coefficient predictors of on the job performance which is uh, exactly what you are let, let, let me ask about that so, so this is my this is my attitude towards uh companies um hiring rather or attracting talent first of all mm. i think that it's about having the right people lean towards you rather than having this reactive notion where it's like, we need three front-end developers go and find them for me. I think that in the future, it, companies that succeed, that thrive, are going to have their own, and you've used this word a few times now, they're going to have their own communities. They're going to have their own small communities of relevant people. And social media is not going to be about having 10 million followers. It's going to be about actually having people that create uh, practical value are they a potential uh, customer? Are they a potential partner? Are they a potential hire? And with the hires specifically, I think that companies now are becoming far more conscious about the individual's character, right? Mm -hmm. Because whether we like it or not, you know, the world is moving towards a point where a lot of developers, engineers, they're probably going to have multiple different jobs and they might jump um, they might jump between companies right in the future so i think it's far more about can you trust that person to um commit to this to the obligations that they've made right um so i mean how do you really as a company behavox assess someone's character is it still in the same way that you and i are doing now are we do you still just talk to people because i still feel that for all the cognitive tests and whatever it might be there's nothing big nothing beats just actually speaking to the person and just like drilling down into what they really want so just one example with salespeople when i'm hiring salespeople i'll say to them how much do you actually want to make at what point does this become valuable to you because don't tell me you know, you, um, the fear is, is that they just kind of say, whatever you offer them, they go, yeah, great, because they want the job. And then six weeks later, they're unhappy. So how do you, in your position, truly drill down into the character of the person? Uh, into the character? Uh, well, what are you after, really? In... Okay, so massive topic Lawrence and I I, I could dig oh, into this for days but I'm going to try and summarize it in the briefest perspective 
Uh, first of all, I think it starts with having a talent and uh, talent acquisition philosophy. And so, for example, with Behavox, uh, we our whole talent acquisition philosophy is that we are looking for some of the best and brightest in the world. Uh, and in order to do such, we need to run a mutual due diligence process. That means we need to provide them with enough information to make an intelligent decision as to whether we are the right career choice for them. And we need to provide, gather enough data from them. And much as I appreciate that organization, especially at the size you're at, like uh, those conversations, as you're saying, like because you need that really cohesive fit. Um, but as you get bigger and you want more sustainability and reliability, validity and reliability, essentially, in your hiring process, you need to get more systematic, in my experience, on this matter, which means using structured behavioral interviewing, essentially. Uh, we use cognitive ability testing as well, because Hunter and Schmidt data on this is is pretty black and white it's the gold standard in being able to predict as a single uh, data point uh, as a single data point of whether that person will be effective on the job in this kind of field so first of all you've got to know yourself as an organization what stage are you at and how developed are you do you need a, a, a production line for hiring or are you hiring just single specific individuals at that stage and then when you're in bigger organizations like I've run worked on this on 30,000 people who organizations again you need a different it's that that kind of plateaus of development that you need to be cognizant of as an organization develops uh, we run facilitated we run facilitated structural behavioral interviews so every one is basically about please provide us an example of a time and before any interviewing even starts okay why why are we investing like a majority of our spend as an organization is on human capital why are we going to invest in this new chaos engineer okay what strategic goals is that position going to drive by how much and by when so a hiring manager would have to define basically which strategic goals is going to have and then commit to now you don't always have to get that right that's prognostication but like you need to be able to have a good estimation of what are they really going to push forward on and then really going into the interviewing process and evaluation process uh, in order to ascertain the the i we structure it so we have stayed in different interview stages there behavioral skills, their technical capabilities, and then the hygiene factors, in fact, in the reverse order there. We call it solving for X, solving for Y, and solving for Z, which means you have three separate data streams, each with five criteria only, which we share with the candidate. We tell them basically the questions we're going to ask them. We don't want them to be nervous. We don't want them to, we signpost exactly what we're going to do, and then we want them to share their best self. Like, that's what you were after. But before, before an interview, you'll tell them what questions they're going to get. Yeah. And we'll ask exactly the same that's questions to everybody. With, I'm, so one, one thing that I admire about Americans, right, is that they are, from a very young age, they have show and tell. They're, mm -hmm. for the most part, they're brilliant communicators, right? They can present themselves in the best way. If you're telling them the questions beforehand, surely they can manipulate their response based on what they think you want to hear. <laughs> okay well in behavioral interviewing basically you're asking for concrete examples it's always concrete examples so it's never theory it's never concept it's concrete example so you could have a technical competency like uh, uh, the ability um to uh to, to deploy uh kubernetes systems uh, to effectively scale an organization from x to y um and uh, you're looking for a concrete example. The best predictor of future capability is past activity. It's a psychological yeah. concept. Yeah. And basically, you're listening for the, the best examples you can of the, the priority things. Like I get people come with a laundry list of this. We want this role to be able to do this, 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 this. There's 20 items. I'm like, no, 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 no. 
which five items are going to really move the needle? Because well, we are not going to interview versus all of these. We're going to have five, uh, okay. absolute limit of five. And in those five, they're going to be evaluated using outlier analysis. So the story's either really missed the mark or it was okay, or it was an exceptional story. Because we're gathering so many data points in each interview stage, basically the outliers allow you to discern who moves through to the next stage. And we always batch interview. So there's never a single case where a single candidate is moving through by themselves. There's always a batch of comparison because hiring is a comparative process. And we want to see really who gets excited about the opportunity to work here as well. Like uh, that, that's you're looking for intrinsic motivators. Like extrinsically, yes, we will pay them very well. Uh, we'll provide a nice working scenario. They'll have learning and development opportunities. They'll have cultural exposure opportunities. But you're looking for people who just get out of bed and want to do the work you're putting them on. Uh, and there's a number of times where there's people come to the end of the interview process and they're like, we're very keen to proceed. And it's like, but really, this isn't this isn't firing. Uh, we can feel that this is not firing you up on all cylinders. Um, like uh, this, and there's a number of psychological <laughs> techniques. I won't tell you about eye movements or other things which can be highly speculative, but there are a number of scientific techniques which can help you discern whether someone is making something up or whether they're recounting uh, a real example and using how, 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 and why, why, why to I'd deep dive awful. underneath the examples. I'd be awful in an interview with you. I, I twitch, I stutter, <laughs> I get nervous. There's no way. Oh, but then from a psychological concept, we start every interview. Every interview is incredibly structured. We start every interview with two thank yous and a congratulations proven psychological technique to basically oh. start to build confidence in the individual. And that, 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 that's where America loses me. You've gone to <laughs> start with the congratulations. Congratulations uh, for the interview. Well, yeah, moving through to this stage, yeah, absolutely. They the... need to feel there's a progression there. You want to feel achievement. Yeah, no. Nah, it's kind of like best effort, right? Like, you know, when, like, like I'm not a fan. But, like, but, but in terms of, like, <laughs> the, the character, like, like, so one of the biggest mistakes I made when when starting a company was I was so obsessed about what the person's ability was, how good they were. I didn't assess the actual character. Are they a good person? How are they going to react when there's a crisis? Are they going to just, you know, is their fight or flight response going to prove that they're just a coward, right? And and and, and I, I think that's... That's the hardest bit, right? I think for any company, it doesn't matter whether you're a you're a ten man band or, or whether you've got ten thousand people. It's how do I find someone who has the right character? And I wish, I wish I'd have been a better judge earlier on. I was way too trusting, and which is why I'm so interested in this topic. How do you actually know if someone's lying to you? You know, you mentioned about eye movements and behaviors, but you still can't really ever tell right the real interview is six months into the job you know that's when you find out who the real the caliber of the person and the makeup of their dna yeah and, and it's really important that uh, basically tying in performance management processes with uh, talent acquisition entirely so that essentially one feeds the other and then the other feeds back into the uh, into the first so we do have uh, structural behavioral interviewing around the values of the organization so for example commit to deliver is one of our values and we'll actually we've got customized questions uh, for each different kind of uh, job family around what does commit to deliver mean in that organization uh, that part of the organization and um then will the question will be based on giving us a real example of a time they felt they committed to deliver 
and does that align with what we believe commit to deliver is from our organizational standpoint um because that's segmented out like uh, and then we do 30 60 90 day achievement we call them periodic uh, achievement measures so we've got immediate feedback loops as to whether uh, the things that we've assessed for are being seen actually in the workplace then we've got crees the key results indicated six months and 12 months into the role are those things and then then there's the performance management system uh, and our performance check-ins on top of that so there's a constant series of data points being gathered and then correlated against on-the-job performance and that when you've got your organization less than 50 or 100 people it's not so valuable but as you get larger and larger having that predictive capability the numbers start to really tell you the story and at that point you can start to really look at who your high performers are what are the similarities in traits that they bring what did they score in their interviews in various stages sometimes the highest score is not always the best uh, and you can see this in the correlation data you can see okay so the, the highest performers actually in this stage of the interview this series of data streams they were scoring fairly middling like around the 60th percentile like what is that telling us uh, and when we hire for more people in this role, instead of looking for people in the 80th percentile, do we actually target looking for people in the 60th percentile in that specific data stream? Okay, uh, so this is where big data analytics and, and really gathering that data in the first place, define what you need, define why your business needs it. You're making a serious investment and it's someone's career. You're bringing someone on board. Like you're taking, you're taking a responsibility for bringing that person into your organization. There's many things they could be doing and you're asking them to come and commit their life, uh, a part of their life and their passion and their energy to your organization. So well, you need to have a justified reason for that. So let, let me ask you this, on Rayon, on, yeah. on the profile pages, we ask people to outline their significant accomplishments, right? How they approach decision making, like with examples, mm -hmm. and the most difficult problems they've ever worked on, and mm -hmm. whether they were able to solve them, and if they did, how how do they solve them, right? Is there, I mean, is there anything else? See, I'm I'm just I'm just using you as a consultant now. <laughs> um, is there any because I, I feel that what you're saying so we, we collect tons of qualitative data right and it's so that we can actually marry people up with the right opportunities um you know, round is not a hiring platform but just by the very nature of what we've built it's something whereby we can recommend we've got our own you know we've built our own recommender system i don't i i'm hesitant to say we're a machine learning company because it's too early right we haven't got enough data. We're still young. We've got tons of data, right? Millions of data points. But you know, as you know, you need you know, your your an AI company is only as good as their data, and you need a lot more data points than what we've got at the moment. But I think that actually, for all the answers, what's interesting is for me is how honest the individual is. I still don't quite grasp. I, I don't think anyone can actually ever really assess that. You know how honest the individual yeah, is honest. like what, what okay oh, so no. honest you see honesty as a driving criteria or a driving yeah. characteristic yeah. for success in your business yeah okay so, so, so then sorry so then what one of the questions that i'd say would be important to you guys was basically um provide us a example of a time where you displayed what you felt was extreme honesty in a situation where you didn't need to Okay. Uh, if that's what you're really looking for, like I don't know if that's a business driver. Like it's for your business, and that's why these things are customized. Well, I, I I I just think it should be in terms of the fact that you know we work with a lot of companies like Series A to D. That's mm -hmm. kind of like our for clients. That's our sweet spot. And then you've got like the the tier one, tier two banks, 
but even that's fairly new to us, right, since Ray Online. Um, but I, I think that more than anything, surely you want to work with people that if you're doing something wrong. And I think that's interesting what you said. Give an example of a time when you've been honest when you didn't have to. That's it, when you didn't have to. And I think if you can attract those people that have got the courage to say, listen, or care, not even courage, they care enough to say, listen, this might not be for my place to say, but here's what I think we're doing wrong, right? You've got to have an organisation that nurtures that care because organisations typically will stomp on that care because they'll say really? that's not to, you're not oh man like absolutely large organizations will stomp on the individual's ability to care because there's bureaucratic systems in place there's uh like this is not your business this is someone else's functional area they will stomp on that unless you care for it and reward it or have systems which basically right. highlight those individuals who did it and show them up to be exemplars and ambassadors uh, of that value it's a great thing to bring but you can't sell people on the fact that this is an honest organization and then bring them into a place where, where as soon as they speak out honestly they get shut down for it so like so it's a part of an ecosystem here in the interview process we have a rule right we had an investor early on and he used to say sell the dream sell the dream right and i'm like no sell the nightmare and as soon as those words came out of my mouth i was like yes that's it so when we interview people we tell them everything about what's going on in the business everything all the threats all the risks you know um and it, what we've what's inevitably ended up happening is we've recruited soldiers because it's mm -hmm. people that have been able to take the pain they know the situation there's no resentment towards me right because they don't feel they've been sold something and yeah. in addition to that when we have meetings at least once a month otherwise it would sound insecure i would just say to the team i'd be like guys Please tell me what I've been doing wrong. What like where where do you think me? Where, where do you think I need to improve? You know? And I don't say it in like a cheesy way. It's like they'll ask me stuff about marketing. I'm like, I'm not the best person to ask about marketing, you know? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like stuff like that. And I I I think that every comp company should be aspiring to have that level of critiquing like the, the leadership critiquing their behavior, especially, sorry, their actions rather, especially as we move into a world of AI. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm aligned with you on that. In fact, first of all, one of the simplest but most powerful systems I brought into a, a multi-billion dollar company was just simply the practice of uh, meetings uh, starting with something we call shine and rain, which is basically people in the room uh, going around and saying something they were proud about having achieved in the last week or since the last meeting and something that was really challenging them because one of the biggest problems we found was people were just hiding back their problems. They were storing them up. They didn't feel that they would get supported. They didn't want to show that the, they made me not perfect and none of us are perfect how bad i make i make dozens of errors every day but uh, i try to reflect back on them and see where those errors were trying to do a little bit less of them make new errors uh, so i could continue as later developing on that but that rain and shine being able to basically say hey what am i proud about achieving and knowing that you're going to have to speak next week about something you're proud about achieving means you need to do something you're proud of achieving. And then also having that forum to say, okay, but this area I'm really struggling with, like does any of the group here, like anybody of the meeting have any contributions, anything they could help with there, really helps build that community. Like for the simplest activity ever, just shine and rain each time. If you only have shine, you have a desert. If you only have rain, you have a swamp. What we're looking for is a beautiful savannah. And in order for that, we need both our rain and our shine every week. Well, speaking about rain and shine, so, so I mean, just last last uh, topic briefly. I mean, behavior. It's like, what what does the future look like for you guys? Where, where do you want to see this going now? 
Oh, the Havox is uh, on a on a rocket ship journey uh, essentially at this point. Uh, the, the the technology we've got, we are the number one in our field in, as far as the technology we've got. There's really no comparisons. We're doing open uh, sessions like we did the Finra session. We actually had people coming like heads of Finra or very very head uh, head of compliance people coming and testing out our system, beat beat our AI, so they could try and put in sentences like communication data or speaks, uh, and then the, the AI systems will analyze whether this is uh, an alert or not an alert and give the the justifications for that as well. We're doing stuff in that field. That, at this point, no one else is doing. So that's fascinating. We're building out additional capabilities in archiving because we've seen customer demand for that. Um, and we're just essentially building out a, a community that, that continues to take intense pride in being freaking fabulous at what it does. And that I think is the underlying, the, the greatest strength the organization has. Its technology is wonderful. Like our approach to market is very strong, but it's just having that community dedicated to really uh, pushing the boundaries and moving it forward. And that's, it sounds like, it very, sounds very lib. Man, that's a effort. It's an art to create that. Uh, and do we fail? Nah, do we fail all the time? We make this mistake, we make that mistake. But we try to analyze and we have a very data-driven organization and we try and really improve continuously. And I think that's what gives the Haybox its true competitive advantage. Well, looking forward to see um, your success in the future, that's for sure. Adam, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Lawrence, it's been rock and roll, mate. Anytime, anytime for you, oh, sir. Yeah. I'm available at a click of your fingers almost. <laughs> Little genie in a lamp. Let's do it, sir. <laughs> Adam, great to see you. All right. You take care, sir.